here this morning. Whoa, there we are. Great to see you here this morning. And uh, thank you for uh, your attendance on Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I know it was a difficult time inconvenience-wise because there were lots going on in Vandalia. And uh, congratulations for all of that. And uh, we've been uh, working through um, preparing our hearts for revival. It's been uh, it's been a tough uh, three nights because we have um, we have dealt with some difficult and hard things, realizing that in every one of our lives uh, we can easily go through the motions rather than the joy in our hearts. Church can become a drudgery. Church can become a habit. We can go because of a lot of reasons why we go to church except to honor and glorify and worship and adore our Lord and Savior. And it can happen to all of us. And it does happen to all of us. And so over the last uh, several nights, we have been repairing altars in our lives. We have been identifying shortcomings in our life and taking them before the Father. We have begun, begun to learn what it means to be poor in spirit, to feel the impoverishment in our own spirit and to realize that only God can fix us. Uh, we have been going to the reviver, and that's what I want to do this morning. The messages, uh, for those of you who have, who have not been here, the messages over the last several nights have been uh, deep and hard and uh, difficult truths, but they are, um, they are biblical truth that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness, it's his uh, goodness that leads us to repentance, but repentance and brokenness are absolutely essential in a relationship with God. I, I want to tell you, and, I, and I, I promise you, God resists the proud. Now, the proud does not mean egocentric, per se. The proud simply means those who will not bow the knee, who will not uh, look at themselves in the mirror of God's Word, who will not humble themselves and be broken before the Lord. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, told us, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. The first step to knowing God, even after you're saved, is to see yourself impoverished without Him. He has absolutely everything you need, and you have absolutely nothing you need without Him. Jesus said, Abide in me, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you don't abide in me, you can do nothing. Nothing that we do for the kingdom of God in our flesh and because of our effort and because of our hard work, it's hay, wood, and stubble, it will be burned up. Only that which we do in the power of the Holy Spirit, only that which we do out of a brokenness and a, and a sense of impoverishment in our own spirit is what leads us uh, to vitality and the freshness and the anointing of the Holy Spirit so that church doesn't become a drudgery, rather it's a joy. As we uh, accounted this morning, as uh, Titus was praying with us, he said, I, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. It's been a while for some of you that that's the way you felt on Sunday morning. Yeah, I'll go. Yeah, I, I'll go. Jesus also said after that, 
Not only blessed are the poor in spirit, but he said, blessed are those who mourn. In other words, there is an attitude of grieving over my impoverished spirit. Looking at myself in the mirror of God's word, looking at the holiness of God, and looking at myself, I grieve and I mourn that I am like that. And I want deliverance from that. And it goes on, of course, Jesus talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst. When we see ourselves as we really are, as we mourn and grieve over that, rather than being proud of ourselves and thinking we're just as good as that person or just as good, we do really good at comparative theology, by the way. But if you want to practice comparative theology, there's only one person to compare yourself to, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that case, we all fall short. And so we hunger and thirst after righteousness. Well, today I want to take you to the Old Testament. And I want to take you to uh, a, a warning by a prophet of the Old Testament named Joel. Joel is a very difficult book because uh, Joel is a prophet standing at a crossroads in the life of Israel, and he is sounding the alarm. Now, I don't know if y'all have a city alarm system here. I'm sure that you do, a horn that blasts. And when the horn blasts, unfortunately, it's a practice run usually, and so we get used to hearing the horn blast, right? And we don't really realize that it's a, a, a real emergency. But... Um, in Joel's day, God spoke to Joel and said, Judgment is imminent. My judgment is coming upon Israel. Now, Israel had done what we have talked about several times. Israel was in a vicious cycle. God would bless them. And in their blessing, in their abundance, in having everything they needed, they would forget God. By the way, it is the picture of the United States of America church. We are so blessed, things are so convenient, things are so easy that we have forgotten God. We have taken for granted who God is and what He has done on our behalf. We all need to spend a month or so in a third world country church to see how those believers who depend upon God daily just for life and how they worship and how passionate they are to the things of God. Well, anyway, there was this vicious cycle. They would be blessed by God and they would forget God, so they would walk away from God, they would wander away from God, and God would have to send some marauding nation, some godless nation, in judgment over Israel, and they would, under that persecution, they would repent and they would turn back to God and they would be blessed. And then guess what happened when they were to be blessed? They would forget God. And they had this vicious cycle. In Judges, it happened seven times. Seven times through a couple of generations there in Judges. Well, Joel is one of those prophets. He's standing at the crossroads, and he is sounding the alarm. And now he is, God has told him, there's going to be a swarm of locusts. Now, I, I'm not going to preach that sermon, but if you, if you uh, look at the Middle East and the times in history when locust swarms have hit that region. The Bible, Joel, describes that in front of them is all of the land of Israel, all the buildings and the cattle and the, and the livestock and all the crops, and behind them is blight, nothing. They eat everything. And Joel says to the people, God has said, I'm sending that locust to you. They're not only going to 
defeat you. They're going to destroy and devastate everything. And he's giving them this warning. And he does it in the whole first chapter and up to the second chapter. And now I'm in the second chapter and the 12th verse of the second chapter. And God has already said, this marauding army, this locust, this army are going to come and destruction is, I mean, uh, defeat is not their purpose. Total destruction is their purpose. Everything, devastation. You'll have nothing left. No corn, no, uh, no crops, no water, no cattle, no anything. There will be nothing left in God's judgment. And by the way, this is the judgment of God. And by the way, the judgment of God still comes upon God's people just like it does on the societies that God's people live in. So if you would stand when we uh, read God's word, it's just a tradition that I have when I preach to honor God's word. It goes back to the days of Ezra when they discovered the scrolls. And by the way, they stood in the rain all day long reading God's word. They stood and they read God's word because they honored God's word. It was a new thing that they had found. They had forgotten God's word. And this was late in their history. And they found these scrolls and they and they rejoiced over them. And they listened to God's word being read all day. So here's God's word now. And I'm going to back up to 11 before you even can see what's on the screen. But the 11 says, the Lord makes his voice heard in the presence of his army. Now this army that's coming to destroy them is God's army. And God's appointed judgment. And in the presence of his army, his camp is very large, and those who carry out his command are powerful. Indeed, the day of the Lord is terrible and dreadful. Who can endure it? Now, you have to catch the picture of how devastating this message is to the Israelites. And then verse 12, even now, I love that, even now, this destruction is imminent. It's just around the corner. It is going to devastate the land. It's going to destroy everything. But even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes. A rent garment was a symbol of humility. And return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Heavenly Father, would you speak to our hearts this morning? Would you break through the calluses? Would you break through the hardness? Would you break through the glazed over because we've been uh, we've grown apathetic to the words of God? Father, would you break through our hearts this morning and speak to us? We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. I'm going to contend with you that today in the culture that we live in in the United States, it is far past the time for Christians when the call to prayer is simply a call to pray more often. We're far past that time. I believe with all of my heart that the judgment of God is imminent upon the United States of America. We have been playing around with His grace for far too long. 
There's only been two nations that I can tell in the history of nations who've named themselves to be a nation of God. Israel and the United States of America. It follows then that the way God dealt with Israel is the way God will deal with America. When we once claimed we're a nation, one nation under God, we're a Christian nation, and our forefathers have founded the nation on the biblical principles of Scripture and declared openly in their faith in God and God's ability to bless, we must, we must see ourselves as in the path of God's judgment. In the past, we've, we've called for prayer, more prayer individually, more prayer corp corporately, but though I believe more prayers are desperately needed in our personal lives, as well as in our corporate lives as churches, I believe that none of us, none of us have ever personally experienced the state of crisis that is looming as a reality on the United States of America in the coming years and days. Many of us had this sense of the total depravity prior to the election. Many of us still have a sense that politics and politicians are not going to rescue the United States of America. If we do not turn back to God, our die is cast. And so, even though the election is over, I believe that the battle that we see every day on television between a, a becoming further and further and further separated world, separated society in the United States, where Christians are becoming more and more um, criticized, more and more persecuted. I believe, just as God did to Israel, he used ungodly people to judge his people. Just think about it. I believe that what we're experiencing now is child's play compared to the devastation that God's judgment, is. I believe, is building. If this morning an alert sounded, the horn went off in your community, your iPhone began to blink and uh, an orange alert or red alert came on, if our iPads and our radios and our televisions uh, all came on, that imminent danger was upon us and we received instructions of getting to a shelter in order to stay alive, our lives on that moment would intensely and forever be changed immediately. I mean, everything would be different. Priorities would be different. Things that we were going to do would be different. The only thing that we would be concerned about is the danger that is coming our way and getting out of harm's way. Life would begin to change for us immediately. We'd become aware of a danger so critical and so devastating that failure to act would be fatal. That's what would happen. We would say, unless we act, unless we get out of harm's way, we'll die. Now, in 1959, the United States Armed Forces and the Joint Chiefs of Staff invented the DEFCON system. DEFCON is the Defense Readiness Condition. And it's, as you probably know from movies, it prescribes five graduated levels or states of alert readiness from DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. 
Now it increases in sever severity, where DEFCON 5 is the least severe, to DEFCON 1 is imminent uh, military action, nuclear war, as a matter of fact. Now, we have only been, since 1959, in the United States, we've only been to DEFCON 3 a handful of times. The Cuban Missile Crisis, Korea, and 9-11. We've only been at DEFCON 2 at the beginning of the Gulf War, one time in the history since it's been, we have never been at DEFCON 1, which is imminent nuclear war. Now, I don't, I don't want to use that acronym in a, in a way to sensationalize the sermon or uh, the, our spiritual condition this morning, but rather I want to call attention to what I believe is the spiritual condition of Christians in the United States of America. I believe spiritually across the board of mainline denominations and across the board of churches that are meeting this morning, we are in a critical state as God's people. The most severe. We are uh, we are on the edge, I believe, of living in DEFCON 2 spiritually and maybe on the edge of declaring imminent and impending righteous and severe judgment of God upon our nation. And I, I don't say that just to grab your attention and, and try to sensationalize a sermon, uh, but rather because I believe that every, or I know this, every Christian revival expert, and there are lots of them that I read and and they blog, and we and we have these websites. Every revival expert and every revival organization are screaming out the alarm today. Everyone. And they're all saying the same thing. God's judgment is imminent. We're at the precipice of God's judgment upon America and upon the Western church. The churches in other parts of the world are flourishing. The gospel is expanding and exploding and what was once the greatest missions sending nation is now on the verge of receiving missionaries from other parts of the world to the United States to share the gospel of Jesus Christ why because we have become insulated against the gospel we now are a spiritual nation where spiritualism qualifies for anything spiritual whether it's Satan worship or crystal worship, or just simply believing that there's no God and the wonder of humanity that we worship. We're a spiritual nation, but we are not a Christian nation anymore. And we're going to begin to see Indian and Chinese and Japanese and European missionaries coming to the United States to try to rescue the United States from where we are and where we're going as a, as a society. Our call today is not to more prayer, but I want to read to you Dr. Greg Frizzell, and I've brought with me a book that I promised those who came last night that I wanted you to know about, and I wanted you to consider uh, getting. Uh, Dr. Frizzell sells his books for the cost of printing, so they're Two or three dollars. Dr. Greg Brazell is a, a friend of mine and he has written How to Develop a Powerful Prayer Life, The Biblical Path to Holiness and Relationship with God. Now, this is not a book to be read, per se, sit down and read through the book. It's a book to be prayerfully read through 
page by page and just simply stopping and saying, when God speaks and when God talks, you just stop for there for the day and you pray through that. And it may take you months to get through this. But I promise you, I promise you, if you prayerfully read through this book, you will, God will begin to speak to your heart about your prayer life, about the sin in your life, about confession and repentance and brokenness, all the things that are valuable to God. By the way, let's just lay it out there today. God hates pride. Now, pride is the same as stubbornness. God hates it. You hear his word, you know what truth is, and you refuse to do anything about it. God pushes you away. The Bible says God opposes the proud. But he pours grace upon the humble. The humble is that who's broken. The humble is that who agrees with God and what God says about me. God, you're right. And so I, I would, I would uh, encourage you to do this. Brian is going to have the information on this. You might decide as a church to buy a lot of copies and let the church members buy it from just a, one supply, or you as an individual believer might want to, to get it. Dr. Greg Frizzell, it will really uh, bless your life, your devotional life, as you, as you um, uh, just read through it and pray through it. But th listen to what he has said. It's a little bit of a long quote, so you have to stay with me. Our call is to whole life surrender and daily abiding prayer. Rather than seeking blessings or relief from trials or even revival, true prayer is about seeking God's glory and His kingdom. True revival praying is about seeking an abundant love relationship with the reviver himself. Rather than simply needing more prayer, Scripture calls for stronger prayer from effective, fervent prayer of utterly yielded hearts. We must pray God's deepest heart priorities in the full power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. In a nation and churches so filled with abominations, only seeking God with all of our hearts can turn today's rushing tide of evil. Instead of casual, general prayers, we need prayers that are effective, specific, and strategic. American believers must face the reality that our nation and many churches are already under fairly advanced levels of God's righteous judgment. Dr. Greg Frizzell. So this morning, brothers and sisters, I want to clearly sound the alarm. I want to passionately and fervently scream out the warning to all of us as believers. God's judgment is imminent. We must act. We cannot go on as life as usual. If you were here last night, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6, but you remember Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees God in his throne room, high lifted up in the train of his robe, fills the temple, and he sees God and he says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and those kinds of things. And I reminded them here last night, but you don't, uh, you may not know this, that the highly effective and successful king, King Uzziah, had died. Now, King Uzziah had reigned for 52 years, and after the divided kingdom, he had almost restored the boundaries back to David and Solomon days, which is, was amazing. He was a highly effective king. They had subdued all of their enemies, and he died. And it was then that God gave Isaiah this, this vision in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw 
the Lord high and lifted up. Now, other places in in Isaiah, God's telling Isaiah what to tell the people when King Uzziah died. And this is what he said. God called for weeping and mourning for baldness and wearing sackcloth. Now, we know that that was a a, a symbolism of their humility and their brokenness as they shaved their heads and they dressed in sackcloth and ashes. But instead, Isaiah records the people's response. Joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine, saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This is the state of Israel. As God warned them of imminent judgment, as this effective king has died, and how do they respond? Let's party because tomorrow we're going to die. That is the United States of America today. They don't want to hear the warning. They don't care about the warning. And the sad news is many of them are sitting in church pews today. We don't want to hear a word of judgment. We don't want to hear a warning. We just want to go with life as usual. We want to just continue on. Isaiah sounded the alarm. And he and other prophets, they warned passionately about the impending judgment of God. But the people of God ignored Isaiah, ignored all of those prophets, and they ignored their warnings, and they went on with their godless lifestyle, and God sent judgment. And God's judgment wasn't just simply the evil kings that ruled after Uzziah, though there were plenty of evil kings that led Israel down the wrong road. But there was an abundance of them. But God's judgment included war. And it included defeat. Their cities were destroyed. Thousands of their people killed. Their nation taken over by godless nations. And the people carried into slavery and captivity. And make no mistake, this was God's judgment, not just an evil nation's doing. And the remnant of God's people who loved the Lord, who loved the Lord with all their heart, they were taken off into captivity just like the rest of them. Right? They weren't saved from it. Many of them were killed. Their nation was destroyed and controlled by a godless generation of people for generations. Let me just ask a, a profound and maybe, maybe a over-the-top question, but what would our lives and our children's lives look like tomorrow if God allowed the nations of Islam to control the United States? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what would that look like? If God's judgment back then took the form of giving them over to godless nations, what makes us think that God doesn't use godless nations today to bring judgment? What would our lives look like if God's judgment looked the same today as it did in the Old Testament? Wouldn't we, like Israel, weep and mourn and beg God for forgiveness and deliverance after the fact? Wouldn't we then tell God, if you'd give us another chance, we'd go back and we'd do it differently? If such devastating judgment came upon us, we'd wish for a chance to do it differently. And if you believe that there's nothing we can do now, if you believe that the mold is cast and God's mind is unchangeable, what will be will be, then you are not a Bible-believing Christian. If you believe that if you don't believe that the fervent prayer of a righteous person is powerful and avails much, then you are not a Bible believing Christian. Yes, 
We can turn the tide. Yes, God can relent. And instead of judgment, God can return a blessing if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked sins and seek my face, I will hear from heaven and I will restore. Now, the truth is that we Christians hear this warning and we go home and forget. Nothing in our lives changed. We'll remember the days that we heard the warning later. Much like the lost person who wakes up after dying in hell. He'll remember every time the gospel was preached to him. He'll remember every time and every opportunity that God gave him to repent and become a child of God. And he said no. We as believers will remember every warning. Every time we heard God speak to our hearts to get serious about our Christianity. Brothers and sisters, if we would seek God with all of our hearts, and if we would give true biblical repentance all of our effort and attention, and if we would strive for obedient living, and if we would desire only God's will and only God's glory, and if we would pray in the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, God would answer our prayers. And God would sweep through this nation with a fiery, holy, ghost, great awakening. Things would drastically change if God's people. I'd like to get to the text now. My church is used to the sermon before the sermon. That was that. Let's look at the text. I want you to see two things, three things in this text, and we're going to be done this morning. First, I want you to see the heart. Joel 2, 12 and 13, if you still have your Bibles open, I want you to read that, the heart. Yet, even now. It's the context of the whole chapter. You see, the context is this. God is sending judgment. It's done. God's pronounced it through Joel. He's pronounced the judgment. This is what's going to happen. And he's sending it in the form of a great and powerful people, a godless people, a people that don't love God. But it's God's army. He makes it clear in verse 11. And his army, that I read to you in verse 11, will execute his word. Now listen to the heart of God. Yet even now. We never, we never run out of God's patience. God's patience is infinite. God's mercy is infinite. God's grace is infinite. And yet we abuse that infinite mercy as God's people. We abuse it. We just say, well, God's not going to do that. God's not going to send judgment. And then we're going to wake up one day in God's judgment. Now, why does God send judgment, by the way? Does God send judgment upon believers for, for some sense of uh, punishment and it's too late? No, the only reason God sends judgment on believers is that we might fall to our knees and then he can restore us. That's why God sends judgment on believers. But sometimes... The judgment must be radical before we get on our knees and we get real before God. And so God says, before the judgment comes, yet even now, yet, it's some of the most grace-filled words in all of Scripture. Judgment is imminent. Judgment is coming. Yet I will still relent, even now. 
yet even now, his heart. He says, yet even now, if you return. Now, friends, I, I don't know how else to say this, but there is no relationship with God, even as a believer, the intimacy with God without repentance. Repentance is the number one mark of a, of a believer. Ongoing repentance. As a matter of fact, the believers in the early days were known as repenters. And in Romania today, where a friend of Brian and ours are, are living in, in Romania and missionaries, that's what a Christian is known as, a repenter. We repented once and we received the justification for our faith, but repentance is not done in our lives. We repent daily. We repent hour by hour. Repentance is the number one mark of a believer. If you're not a repenter, you'd better question whether you ever came to Christ. If you don't see yourself in the mirror of God's word and it drives you to mourn over your sin and grieve over your sin and see the impoverished nature of who you are and run to Christ, then you may not be a believer in the first place. Repenter. He says, even now, if you repent. Listen, my friend, repentance always gets God's attention. Always. God is consistent. He is faithful. He's not like us. I'm wishy-washy. I'm inconsistent. I'm passionate, and then I'm apathetic. God is not. God is always, always, always moved by repentance. God always responds to repentance. The definition of repentance is here in the passage of Scripture before you. All your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, rending. That's the picture of repentance. Is that a picture of your life? As a believer. Fasting, weeping, mourning, tearing your heart. Does that, does that somebody go, that's me. That describes me to a T. The problem is in church. We've gotten over repentance. We made it civil now. Simple. Easy. We just say, I'm sorry. Have you ever said, I'm sorry to your spouse for the 40th time and they finally go, don't even be telling me you're sorry because I know you're not. That's how we treat God. Repentance is described in the passage. Even now. Turn to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, mourning, tear your hearts. You see, I need to compare my prayer life with these words. For he, is this is the, the next thing about God, if we repent, for he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and he relents or changes his mind or takes a softer stance over disaster. You see, my friend, God is equally just. He is equally righteous. He is equally judging. He is equally gracious and merciful and slow to anger. But God always seems to prefer to act in steadfast love and grace. Always. He's always merciful. It is never too late to seek the Lord in prayer. And have him answer you in prayer. Secondly, and I'll go quickly, the priorities. The priorities. Jesus told us the priorities in Matthew 6.33, didn't he? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Actively pursue, actively search, 
actively pour effort and priority as opposed to these other things. Other things. Our whole problem in modern Christianity is a divided mind and heart. We love God a little bit and we love the world a little bit. And we want the both the best of both worlds. But Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. We're where we are as Christians in this nation because we're riding the fence of priority. We have divided hearts and divided minds. Third thing I want you to see as we look at this, and I'm, I'm moving rather quickly. Jeremiah 29, 13 tells us about the passion. We've looked at God's heart. We've looked at our priorities and now the passion. When, Jeremiah says, when you seek me with all your heart, God promises I will be found by you. God promises I will restore your fortunes. God promises I will gather you from the nations. That's what he told Israel. I will bring you back. In other words, God's promise is to answer every one of the quest requests they were making. If they would only meet his condition. To tear their hearts. Weep and mourn with fasting. By the way, that's, that's something we don't even want to talk about as Southern Baptists. That fasting thing, that goes against fried chicken. But we don't fast anymore. We don't fast. And, and Jesus' assumption wasn't, if you decide to fast, but Jesus' taught, teaching was what? But when you fast, this is the way you do it. There is a, an assumption on the part of God that God's people fast. And they fast for a purpose. What is the purpose? To seek the Lord. We deprive ourselves of food for a time so that we might seek the Lord. And listen, that is just not American at all. We're not going to do that. Why? Because we're not serious about seeking the Lord. Because we're not serious about seeking the Lord. So passion. And then lastly, and I'm going to be done, the power. Where does the power of, of, of this prayer life come from? And I want to take you to James 5.16. And I'm going to uh, end with, uh, with this passage here in James. If I can find it. James 5.16 says this. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful and effective and we talked about Elijah and the prophets of Baal Elijah was a human being just as we are and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land produced fruit this kind of prayer this grieving and this mourning over our sin and this looking into the mirror of God's word and our, our fasting and our desire for the glory of God and the will of God above everything else, that kind of praying is effective praying. That kind of praying God promises to answer. And a church or a person committed to praying like that and seeking the Lord like that can be promised that God will answer. This church wants revival. God's waiting on you. The Bible says his arm is not too short, that he cannot save. God doesn't, it's not that God doesn't want to send revival. He's like, no, 
I really don't care about sending revival to you. It's not that God can't. He doesn't have the power to do it anymore. God can do whatever he wants. It is the fact of God's people, God's people, having apathetic, divided hearts. And we all, we all have them. But God promises throughout Scripture that such kinds of prayers are effective and powerful. Would you heed the warning from Joel today? Even now, says the Lord, if you turn and turn to me with fasting and weeping and mourning and tear your hearts, God will relent. God will rather than bring disaster, bring blessing. That's what it says at the end of the passage. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Heavenly Father, this is up to you, Holy Spirit. I can't bring conviction on anyone. I can't, I can't transform anyone's life. Nothing I can say or do can impact a person's life. But Holy Spirit, that's what you do. You can transform lives. You can bring us to a place of obedience and brokenness, a place where you can use us and work with us, a place where the church can see the extraordinary movement of God that results in the extraordinary kinds of things happening in the lives of the people of God. Lord, we want revival. And Lord, I know that we don't want it enough, and, and I know, Lord, that there's issues, and I pray that, that we would deal with them today. And that we would deal with them in the coming weeks. Lord, that we might become a humble, broken people who are poor in spirit, mourn and grieve over our sin, hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? And as your, as your worship leaders lead you, and I'm going to ask your pastor to be here at the front. We've talked a lot all week long about the altars and repairing altars in our lives. The altars in the church need to be repaired. I mean, man, when I was a kid and my, my parents were small, uh, when, man, there were brush arbor revivals. Man, people flooded the altars not to get saved, but to pray for those who weren't saved. We've lost the passion of using altars in the church. I'm not doing that for any kind of... A, pressure on you this morning. I'm just simply saying, sometimes bending the knee in at the altar is exactly what God asks of his people to lead us toward repentance and brokenness. You do what God calls you to do as your praise team leads you. Your pastor is here at the front.